Well, good morning. Take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Revelation 18. Revelation 18. I was not here last week and preaching at a different church in our community, but was able to go back and listen to Gerald's sermon this past week from Revelation 17 and shared with him this week that just in my own mind, in my own heart, just have been overwhelmed with just tragedy when I read these chapters. That's my response. It's just the tragedy of it. The tragedy of this picture that we see of the systems of the world and what the world is and what it has become. And in many ways, my mind has gone back to the beginning. We're at the end in Revelation, but my mind keeps going back to the beginning, to Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and recalling that at the end of God's creation, He declares something over his creation. Do you remember what he declares? What does he say about it? It is good. Indeed, it is very good. It is very good. And we see this picture of shalom. We see this picture of universal flourishing. We see this picture of goodness and God's creativity and such potential that is there. And God created us as the crowning jewel of his creation. And then he gave us the mandate, the cultural mandate to carry his creativity forward. Do you see that in Genesis 1 and 2? That in so many ways we are designed to mirror Him, to image Him, and we are creative as He is creative. And we are to carry that creativity forward, and we see just this beautiful potential in Genesis 1 and 2. My mind has gone back to this book. It's a book by Cornelius Plantinga. I would highly recommend it to you. Um, It's a book on sin. And it's aptly titled, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. Because as my mind goes back to Genesis 1 and 2, and I listen to what we are working through in Revelation 17 and now 18, we see that it's not the way that it's supposed to be. And I love the way that Cornelius Plantinga defines some things. First, he defines for us what shalom is that we see there in Genesis 1 and 2. He says this, says, the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. It is a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. But when we read this account in Revelation 17 and 18, we do not get that picture, do we? Such tragedy. What humanity has done with God's good creation in response to His goodness. And I love the way that Plantinga defines for us what sin is. I think it's the most profound definition of sin I've ever heard. He says this sin offends God not only because it bereaves or assaults God directly, as in impiety or blasphemy, but also because it bereaves and assaults what God has made. 
And then he says this, in sum, shalom is God's design for creation and redemption. Sin, however, is blamable human, listen to this word, vandalism of these great realities and therefore an affront to their architect and builder. When we look at Revelation 17 and 18, we see vandalism. And it's the result of this sin. That enters two chapters into the story, by the way, in Genesis 3. One final quote by Plantinga. This is what he says about the corruption of sin. He says, the story of the fall tells us that sin corrupts. It puts asunder what God had joined together and joins together what God had put asunder. Like some devastating twister, corruption both explodes and implodes creation, pushing it back toward the formless void From which it came. So instead of carrying God's creative purposes forward, carrying creation forward, sin works backwards towards the void before even God's creativity made all that was. And so, really, the end here in Revelation 17 and 18, we see the culmination of this. And, brothers and sisters, I'm just convinced that it should overwhelm us more, it should affect us more, especially in light. Of God's good creation. One commentator says this in response to Revelation 18. He said the world is a spiritual red light district. Anything and everything our hearts desire is readily available to us. But brothers and sisters, every time we purchase something, it costs. There is a cost associated with it. We see and we continue to see, just as we saw in Revelation 17, that the prostitute, this harlot called Babylon, is using others just as others were also using her. And we see the tragedy of this mutual relationship based on using each other. And we are reminded or we need to be rewinded and we need to be warned that the world does not love us. The world does not love us. And where we saw a very wide-angled view of this pronouncement of judgment of Babylon and her destruction in chapter 17, chapter 18 now is almost a replay, giving us the details of all that includes. And it pulls heavily from the Old Testament. I want you to write these references down, and I would challenge you to read them this next week. References to Babylon, references to Tyre, because... This chapter just pulls from these passages heavily, and we just don't have the time to go back and make all of the connections this morning. I wish we did. But write these down. Ezekiel 26 through 28 is the proclamation to the people of God in the midst of Tyre's destruction. And then with Babylon, Isaiah 13 and 14 and and chapter 21, and then Jeremiah 50 and 51. One commentator referred to Revelation 18 as a funeral dirge. It's a funeral song. And so what I have done this morning is I've broken it up into three different sections, three different songs. And I don't think that they are primarily songs as such, but we have three different sections where we hear different lyrics being proclaimed. And so that's how I would like to walk through this morning, chapter 18, as we work back through what we saw in 17 with greater detail. So for time's sake, we will not take the time to read all the way through the passage before we begin. Let's just pray and we'll begin to work through it together, okay? So let's pray. Father, my heart is frazzled this morning. It was just a morning like we so often encounter. And so, Lord, I feel that in my spirit this morning, and I know I'm probably not alone in that. 
but Lord, I want to um, sit under your word this morning. I want to learn from you. I want to lean into you, Father. I want to hear what you have for us in this passage. And I believe that you would give us both a warning and an encouragement from this passage. So, Father, help us not to miss that. Lord, thank you for your spirit that helps us as we work through your word, Father, to properly interpret it and to apply it. And, Father, I pray that we would just see the tragedy that's here. But also, Lord, heed the warning that you're giving us. So, Father, do that work in our hearts today. We thank you for helping us in that task. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. First, we see songs of judgment in verses 1 through 8. And first, we hear a pronouncement of judgment from an angel. Look at verse 1 there. After this, John writes, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. Listen to the description of the angel there first, having great authority. Who are angels? They are God's messengers sent with God's word. He comes in God's authority. So when he speaks, it's as if we are hearing from God himself. That's the authority that he carries. Just like every other angel that we hear speaking in the book of Revelation. It says that the earth was made bright with his glory. Can you just close your eyes for a second and imagine that? The earth was made bright with his glory. We see what's going on in the earth. It's darkness, it's smoke, it's void, it's ugly, but then it's, it's illuminated by the glory of this angel. And that glory, I think, points to two things. First, that the angel had come from the presence of God. It's his glory. It's God's glory that illuminates the earth. But second, it, jo- it only places weight on the pronouncement that the angel is going to make. We need to lean in and listen. All attention is cast to where this glory, where this light is radiating from. So we need to lean in. We need to hear what this angel has to say. And we see that beginning in verse two. And he called out with a mighty voice. Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. We hear this refrain of fallen, fallen is Babylon. This echoes Isaiah 21, 9, where the prophet there proclaims fallen, fallen is Babylon. And all the carved images of her gods, he has shattered to the ground. Yes, it is written in the past tense, but the past tense nature of this proclamation only points to the certainty of it to come. That it's in God's economy, it's already accomplished. It's already done. Babylon is already fallen. And what we see here is the removal of a veneer. We see the removal of a facade that was Babylon. Now it's unveiled to see her for who she truly is. And here we see a picture of what will be found left in her after this destruction. In a little while, he's going to tell us what will not be found there. Here we see what will be found there. And look what he says has become a dwelling place for demons a haunt for un, every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. That is what is left in the great city. I love what Duval says. He writes, rather than the honorable garden city that God envisions, Babylon has become just the opposite, a desolate, demonic wasteland, completely devoid of image of God life. That's the picture that we get. Of the great city, of what could have been, what should have been, but it's not the way that it's supposed to be. And we see that here. It's no, it's no wonder that left here are demons and unclean spirits and unclean and detestable beasts. They are the ones who shaped it and they are the ones who now dwell within it. 
and look at the global influence that this city has had. Look at verse three. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Once again, the scriptures uses this idea of sexual immorality to point to love of the world as it does all throughout the story. It's always an illusion for our love of the world. Listen to how James writes of this in James 4. Listen to what he says there when he's talking about the influence of the world on our hearts. He's speaking to believers. Listen to what he writes. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you, he writes. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask, and you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. And listen to the designation. You adulterous people. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? He has made us for himself and we commit adultery when we look outside of him for what can only be found in him. When we give our affections to anything else other than him. We are committing adultery. It is sexual immorality. And we see here in this passage in Revelation 18 that it begins with the kings and it flows down to the merchants. It is here that we need to be reminded, brothers and sisters, that every single person is both a worshiper and a slave. The question is, what do we worship? The question is, what has enslaved us? What have we given ourselves to? And we see a stark picture of what has happened in the hearts of these kings in this passage. Then another voice adds to the lyrics of Babylon's judgment. Look at verses 4 through 8. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she had mixed. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning. Since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow. And mourning I shall never see. For this reason her plagues will come in a single day. Death and mourning and famine and she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. This call is to my people, which leads most people to think that this is the Lord making this proclamation to his people. And the call is, the command is to come out of her. Come out of her is the call. And this is a refrain that's echoed all through the Old Testament. Isaiah 48, 20, the prophet proclaims, go out from Babylon, flee from Chaldea. Declare this with a shout of joy. Proclaim it and send it out to the end of the earth. Say the Lord has redeemed his servant, Jacob. The Lord has redeemed his servant. Come out of her. Isaiah 52, 11, depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. Jeremiah 51, 45. Go out of the midst of her, my people. Let everyone save his life from the fierce anger of the Lord. Jeremiah 51, 6. Flee from the midst of Babylon. Let everyone save his life. Be not cut off in her punishment. 
For this is the time of the Lord's vengeance, the repayment he is rendering her. And then finally, Jeremiah 50, verse 8, flee from the midst of Babylon and go out of the land of the Chaldeans over and over and over through the prophets. And now through the Lord himself, calling his people to come out of the world system, come out of the city, come out. Destruction is coming. Do not share in her. Do not share in her destruction. And we see the why here. Why are we being called out? Why is God's people called out? Look there with me as it goes on. Lest you take part in her sins, lest you fall into her ways and join into her systems and rhythms. As Gerald said last week, brothers and sisters, the system of this world and this world is not to be played with. It's not a game. It's not a game. Lest you take part in her sins. Second, lest you share in her plagues. The message is stay with her and you will suffer with her. Give yourself to the world. You will share in her destruction. He goes on for her sins are heaped high as heaven. Can you imagine the word picture there? Her sins have just piled up on top of each other until they've reached all the way up to heaven. And notice what it says. And God has remembered her iniquities. We live in a world where sometimes we wonder if that's true. Where wicked people just get away with wickedness all the time. And we are prone to join in the refrain that we see through Scripture. Lord, where are you? Have you forgotten? We align ourselves with Ecclesiastes 8.11 where it says, Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. And before I point the finger at somebody else, brothers and sisters, that has been my heart before. I got away with that, so it must be okay. I'll do it some more. But what we see next is the certainty of those consequences. And they're pronounced in verse 6. Pay her back as she herself has paid back others and repay her double for her deeds. We need to be reminded that the world is a for-pay system. And it is a cheap substitute for what God offers freely and abundantly. That's the tragedy in this. That we not run to God for life, the very source of life and goodness that we instead look for what can only be found in him outside of him. And the world is a for pay system. Whenever we give ourselves to the world, whenever we purchase something for the world that can only be found in God, it lets us down. But it also costs dearly. It is a for pay system. And we see the essence here. The root sin of the city of man is abandoning God, pursuing other gods instead of him. That's the root of the sin. Everything else that's done is just the symptom. It's the symptom of that idolatry. And the harlot, as we have seen, is happy to play the part for us. Look at verse 7 again. As she glorified herself and lived in luxury So give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen. I am no widow and mourning I shall never see. We see in her the opposite of humble dependence on God. It doesn't look to God as sustaining, but rather has sold the lie of self-sustenance and self-improvement and self-reliance. Do you hear that siren's call from the world around us drawing us in? Causing us to look at our own self and turn away from dependence on God. But notice that in the assessment of herself, she will receive just the opposite of what her pride assumed. She calls herself a queen. She says she will be no widow. She's no mourning. She shall never see. But listen to what it says in verse eight. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day. 
death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. No matter how mighty they may declare that the city was, it was no match for the might of God. And the plagues here referred are the trumpets that we've already seen, the bowls that we've already seen, and the final judgment that's unfolding before us. You see, brothers and sisters, this is the unveiled reality of the certain end to the ways and systems of this world. And the gospel not only invites us this morning, it commands us to come out of her. It is a command to come out of her. And our response needs to be twofold. Number one, that we would trust in Jesus and his rescue. He has liberated us. And so now we must trust in him. The gospel is always a call to believe. It's always a call to trust, to rest. And that's the command to us, to trust in him. But number two is important, and we need to hear it this morning. Separate yourselves and live your lives as sojourners. Separate yourselves from the systems of this world. Separate yourself from the sorcery, as we will see, of the great Babylon. Do not be compelled to it. Do not be drawn into it. Don't participate in it. And the truth is, there are two choices here. We can flee it, or we can give ourselves to it. There is no neutral indifference. That's one of the ways that our enemy, I think, deceives us in thinking that we can just remain neutral in this. No, we will either flee it, or we will give ourselves to it. There is no neutral indifference. Brothers and sisters, stop looking around you For your identity. When we look around us for our identity, the world is happy to shape that for us. And we are drawn more into the system so that we can mold ourselves into what it tells us we are. Stop looking to the world. Young people, stop looking around you to find your identity. Look to him. The scriptures declare to us who we are in him. Do not look in this world for what can only be found in him. This is the warning to us from Revelation 17 and 18. Stop looking around the world. We see, secondly, the songs of mourning. Verses 9 through 20. What is the response? We're going to see what the response is of those who have given themselves to This harlot, we're going to see their response, these funeral dirges. They're going to sing at her demise. And it's not a pretty picture. First, we see the response of kings. Look at verses nine and the beginning of ten there. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of her torment. We will see a theme in the reactions that come Uh, Here from the three different groups of people that are found here in Revelation 18. We'll see a theme running through. First, let's see the reaction of the kings of the earth. First, they are referred to as those who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her. We know well that those who give most of themselves over to the world systems and seem to benefit the most are those at the top. And here's the truth. Few are able to remain untainted when they come into proximity with power. It's just the byproduct of that. We give ourselves more over to the system because we want to keep the power that we have and we want more of it. And we see that in these kings here. It tells us that they stand far off. We saw last week that the beast is done with the harlot and just casts her aside. And we see that in the kings here. That they've distanced themselves from her. You see, they please themselves with the harlot and mourn their loss and her destruction, but they want no part of her punishment. 
They want no part of her punishment and they do not run to her rescue because they were only using her as she was using them. I love what Danny Aiken says. He says she might have been their lover, but she was never truly loved. And that's the picture that we see here. Listen to their call. Listen to the lyrics of their dirge that they sing. Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city, Babylon, for in a single hour, your judgment has come. Do you hear the paradox in that? It's almost oxymoronic, isn't it? The great city. And your destruction came in an hour. It speaks of the majesty and might of God. Yet they still refer to it as the great and mighty city. And then notice that word, your. For in a single hour, your judgment has come. They don't want to share in that judgment. They put themselves on the outside. They stand far off and sing these songs about the city that they loved. Next, we see the reaction of the merchants. They also weep and mourn, but notice their description. Look at verses 11 through 13. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented wood, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze, iron and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots and slaves. That is human souls. What do you see in that list? What do you see in that list? First, we don't see them mourning the harlot. What are they mourning there? They're mourning that no one buys from them any longer. That's their heart in this. That's what they are weeping over. And did you notice anything about that list of goods there? They provided all the things that people chose to live for instead of living for God. One person said, these are items all about living your best life now. Sounds like a list of things that we can go to Walmart and buy. Have plenty of money to spend all that our hearts desire in our society today. A list of all that can be found on Amazon. The push of a button that can be here in two days. This is a list of luxury. There are no needed items in this. These are items that would make one wealthy and comfortable. You see, profit had become their God. To the point that the exploitation of people was justified as necessary for the bottom line. There are some estimates that in the Roman Empire of John's day, there were some 60 million slaves. 60 million slaves making it all go, making it all work, making it all happen, making all of these things available so that people could live their best life now. All throughout history, we have seen this evil as the culmination of the bottom line and of a greed for profit. And we see it alive and well today, don't we? I looked up some stats from a site called Project Polaris. Listen to what it says. Human trafficking is the business of stealing freedom for profit. What a sad statement. What a sad statement. Do you feel the weight of that statement? Let me read it again. Human trafficking is the business of stealing freedom for profit. In some cases, traffickers trick, defraud, or physically force victims into selling sex. In others, victims are lied to, assaulted, threatened, or manipulated into working under inhumane, illegal, or otherwise unacceptable conditions. It is a multi-billion dollar criminal industry that denies freedom to 24.9 million people around the world today. 
And brothers and sisters, do you know the wood that fuels this slavery is consumerism? It's consumerism. Whether it is us wanting to purchase our goods for cheap so we don't ask and don't tell about how those items are available and made so that we can purchase them cheap, or whether it's, uh, whether it's, um, whether it's partaking of something like pornography that, pu- that fuels sex trafficking. You see, we may not directly participate in slavery, but I believe there is a culpability when we indifferently participate in the systems that perpetuate it. Let me share a little bit with you from my pastoral heart this morning. I wrote this because I want to say it in a specific way. Whatever the economic system we prefer, whether it is socialism or Marxism or capitalism, they are all firmly embedded in Babylon. They are all entrenched in idolatry and make light of the exploitation of people. The spirit of Babylon is alive and quite comfortable within these systems, thriving due to man's fallenness and self-centeredness. We live in a place where happiness is the mantra and comfort the goal, and we prefer willful ignorance when it comes to the means to provide us with that end. And the most uncomfortable place for us to be when we have given ourselves over to the system is walking in the light of Christ. So it's no wonder we also live in a place marked with cheap religion fueled by me-shaped pseudo-gospels that never challenge the bent of our hearts. This is not a light warning. This is not a light warning. This is not a light call. Come out of her. The Lord Christ to his beloved. We need to be reminded that living for Babylon is all about living for yourself. And Christ has redeemed us, not only saving us from hell, but saving us from ourselves and out of the evil systems of the world that are fallen, evil and destined for destruction. We will either flee it or we will become willful participants in it. There is no middle ground for us. And brothers and sisters, with as much love as I can muster to you, God's grand vision for your life does not look like the American dream. That's not his objective for you. And we have to be careful to not allow that vision to become supreme to us, especially with where we live. We've got to be careful that it doesn't keep us from the only true source of life and living toward his end for us. And that is holiness and completeness in him. God's grand vision for you is so much bigger, so much greater. And the invitation is to come out of her and seek him. Find your life in Him. Find your sufficiency in Him. And look at how these merchants mourn in verses 14 and 15. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you. What a sad statement. And all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. This is not a flat repudiation of wealth or commerce or trade, okay? But it should be a warning concerning just how easily we can fix our eyes on the dreams that carry us far away from the heart and fellowship of our Savior. How easily our flesh can be led, or how easily our flesh can begin to lead us 
even as we justify our pursuit of good things. Even those things in the world that seem to do just fine and satisfying us right now, they will not endure. They will not last. They will fade. And once again, we see the merchants standing far off as they mourn the destruction of their beloved city. And listen to their cry. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid to west. Do you, do you hear the tragic nostalgia in that? All they have left are memories of what once was. What a warning to us, brothers and sisters. Do you hear his warning? Do you hear his encouragement? Finally, the response of the seafarers. Look at verse 17. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid to laid waste. And all the shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all who whose trade is on the sea stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour she has been laid uh, waste. Notice again, where are they standing? Far off. Want nothing to do with her destruction. They don't care anything other, other than what they received from her. And all of that is now cut off. And that is the reason for their mourning. Have you noticed that none of these groups have praised God for his justice? What we see is continued defiance. No repentance. Just mourning over what was lost. Everything selfish that we had. Everything that we had used her for is gone. And that's what we mourn. I see this picture of the seafarers and my mind goes back to visions of 9-11. We have some video that was taken from ferries out in the river there. And you're looking back at the great city and you can't even see the majesty of the buildings because of the smoke that rose up. And where did the smoke rise? It rose from where once stood was the beacon of all international trade. Gone. This is the picture we see here. In an hour, it's wiped away. In an hour, it's gone. The seafarers cry out, what city was like the great city? This should hearken us back to Revelation 13 where the people cried, who is like you to the beast? Everything that they had put their hopes and dreams in was gone. And all they are left with is the memory. But from this point on, we will see the contrast between the city of man and the city of God. And the tragedy of this is, as they mourn the loss of this city, they miss the best city. They miss the city that is to come. And once again, their mourning is based in selfishness and personal loss. Look again at verse 19. They threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, alas, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour, she has been laid waste. Finally, we see a song of destruction in verses 21 through 24. And here we see an angel and an illustration. Look at verse 21. I'm sorry, I skipped verse 20. Let's look at that real quick. Verse 20, I want to see a contrast here. We have heard the mourning of those who had used the harlot as she had used them. And now listen to the, to the lyrics that are pouring out from heaven. Verse 20, rejoice over her, O heaven. Rejoice over her and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. This is the answer to the prayer that we see in Revelation 610. 
There it says they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true. How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And the answer is given here in Revelation 18. So the saints of God react in a completely different way to Babylon's destruction. They rejoice at God's vindication. What a contrast. That is a preview for what we will see next week as we go into Revelation 19. Now let's look at this final song. This angel in the illustration. Verse 21, then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea. So we see an allusion back to Jeremiah 51, 63 through 64. It says there, when you finish reading the book, this is the instructions given by God to Jeremiah. When you finish reading this book, tie a stone to it and cast it into the midst of the Euphrates and say, thus shall Babylon sink to rise no more because of the disaster that I'm bringing upon her and they shall become exhausted. This harkens back to the instructions given to Ezekiel in Ezekiel 26, 12. They will plunder your riches and loot your merchandise. They will break down your walls and destroy your pleasant houses, your stones and timber and soil. They will cast into the midst of the waters. When we see the angel uh, do the illustration here of throwing the millstone into the depths of the sea. That is a picture of it never to be seen again, that it's thrown into the depths to be lost, to never be revived. It is gone, completely gone. And listen to what the message is beginning in verse 22. So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. Listen for the refrain of no more as we go through this. Verse 22, and the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters, will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints, and of all who have been slain on the earth. Now we see what will not be found in the city, and it is a tragic list once again. None of these pleasures will be experienced, will be heard, will be participated in anymore. And what we see here is a list of God's good gifts. This is the common grace that we experience, is it not? Go back to where we started as God created us to image him. We are creative as he is creative. And this is the tragedy of our culture is that in common grace, we experience the beauty of God's image, but it is so often misaimed. And that's what we see here. We see the tragedy of it being misaimed. It's a list of beautiful pleasures, but of misaimed pleasures. And instead of these pleasures being used as gifts to the world, the great city influenced the nations with its sorcery. It used the very gifts that God gave as good gifts, not for others and not for him, but for self. It's a tragic picture. Hamilton says this, Babylon would not be bothered with God. So God will not bother Babylon anymore with his pleasant gifts. What a statement. And the most egregious part of this all is that last verse there. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who've been slain on the earth. This points back to chapter 17, where it said that the harlot was drunk with the blood of the saints. Misused God's good gifts for self and for self glory. And they put God's people to death. It's a tragic picture, isn't it? It's a heavy picture for us. But brothers and sisters, in the midst of this, we see the contrast, do we not? 
What a contrast is coming in the next couple of verses as we see the city of God. As we see a contrast between two women, the harlot and now the bride of Christ. And we're going to see that contrast. And brothers and sisters, here is the truth. As certain as we can be of the coming destruction of Babylon, we can be certain that his city is coming. That he is returning. And the call to us this morning is to press into him, even as we come out of the world systems. And the place that we live, we must be aware and we must assess our hearts. We must remain vigilant. As Gerald shared with us last week and as we discussed this past week in life groups, we must be vigilant over our hearts. So some questions for application this morning. First was a question that I kept seeing in different commentaries, and it landed harder every time that I saw it. The question is this. What makes you weep? What makes you weep? We can say a lot of things about COVID, but I think COVID has been a really good opportunity for self-reflection. What did we weep over when COVID took everything away? What do we really love What truly has our affections? We need to assess our hearts. What breaks our hearts? Are our hearts aligned with God's heart? The question is, what is your relationship to Babylon? We are called to be in the world, but not of the world. How do we navigate that? We need to keep our hearts with vigilance. Where is your trust? Where is your hope this morning? We see that any trust, any hope placed in the systems of this world are destined to fail. Where is your trust this morning? Do you hear the warning? Do you hear the call to come out this morning? Maybe the spirit is impressing on your heart different ways that you have entangled yourself in the systems of this world. And God is lovingly calling you out. Calling you out. How consistently are you assessing your heart and how are you doing that? Are you doing that with others? This is one of the ways that the church is a gift to us. And we can assess our hearts together to see where our affections are focused. How passionately are you pursuing the Lord and knowing him? Parents, how did the rhythm of your family this past week shape your kids' hearts? What are we leading other people to look to and to love and to trust in? Aaron asked me last night, Right before bed, she said, have you uh, read Psalm 52? She said, I read this this morning. Turn there with me. This is where I would like to end this morning. Psalm 52. She said, it goes so well with the passage this week. And indeed it does. I want you to hear the steadfast resolve of God's people in this refrain. And I pray that this would be the refrain of our hearts in the way that we're postured towards our world. It says this, beginning in verse 1. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. Your tongue plots destruction like a sharp razor, you worker of deceit. You love evil more than good and lying more than speaking. What is right? You love all words that devour, O deceitful tongue, but God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. 
And listen to the contrast. The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, see the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction. Do you hear the call to come out of her? But I am, David says, like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of God forever and ever. I I will thank you forever because you have done it. I will wait for your name, for it is good in the presence of the godly. Verse 9, church, I pray would be our prayer. I will wait on the Lord. We have declared over and over this morning. Did you pick up on the theme through our music this morning? We have proclaimed the goodness of God. Do we believe that or do we just sing that? It is empty and hollow to come into this room together and proclaim the goodness of God and look for goodness everywhere but in him. And it will not be found. Do we cry with the psalmist in 16 that no good can be found apart from you in your presence or pleasures forevermore? You, O Lord, are my goodness. I can find it nowhere else. Is that the cry of our heart? Church, we do not play with this. Where are our heart's affections this morning? What are we pursuing? What are we trusting? Let's pray. Father, I pray that that would be the resolve of our hearts, even as we trust you. God, thank you that if we are in you, we are in you. Thank you that you hold us fast. Thank you that your love will never fail us will never leave us. You will never leave or forsake us, God. Thank you for that. Thank you for the beauty of the gospel. Even, if it stand, even as it stands in contrast to just the darkness of a sin-sick world all around us. Oh, Father, give us sobriety. We need to be sober-minded, Father, because it is so easy to get swept up into the systems and ways and rhythms of our world. God, our, our hearts are so easily shaped Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Father, that is profound to me. I know that because I see it in myself so often. So, Father, help us not to bend this religion we call Christianity to a place that I can have both. Lord, help us to come out of her and to run to you. God, help us to feel the urgency of the mission this morning. As we see the destruction that is coming for others to come and find safety in the ark who is Jesus. Father, help us to abide there. Having hearts of gratitude for who you are and what you have done for us. And Father, I pray that that gospel would color everything in our lives. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for our rescue. Father, help us to live in that freedom in him. Father, help us to assess our hearts this morning and see if there be any grievous way in us. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your gracious call this morning, for the reminder, Father, once again, unveiling reality for us, God. Help us to fix our gaze there. And not, as James says, to look into a mirror and forget it and walk away having changed nothing. Help us to be doers of your word this morning and not just hearers. Help us even now as we respond to you, Father. Help us to do that faithfully. It's in the name of Jesus we pray these things. Amen.